To ship, of course. The engineering, DevOps, release management, and everything between. It's time again for the Ship Show. I'm your host, Paul Reed, Silver Build, and John Twitter, and at SilverBuildEngineer.com. And tonight, I'm with... EJ Saramella in uh, Northern Massachusetts. This is Sasha Bates at Sasha underscore D on Twitter and uh, blog.fridayredhead.com on the internet. Uh, this is Yusuf at BuildScientist on Twitter and BuildScientist.com. EJ, good to see you again. How have you been? Busy, guys. Really Busy. Busy. <laughs> Yeah, it sounds like you, you were actually mentioning uh, before the show that you, you have been kind of working, you know, doing startup levels of work. Is that yeah. like a euphemism for death march? <laughs> uh, yeah. No yeah, the, my particular office in Cambridge is being run very much like a startup, and I don't think there's much more I can say on the record right now. Yeah. So, we are in private beta, uh, and I think that's a, that, that, that is the limit, I think, that I can talk about right now. So this episode, uh, we'll be discussing proficiency with tools, specifically version control tools, uh, but more on that after news and views. First up tonight, we have an article about, uh, this was in Wired a couple weeks ago, a rogue employee turning a gaming network into a private Bitcoin mine. Unfortunately, Seth is off conferencing at Rikon East? Rikon, yeah. Rikon, yeah. So, so maybe maybe he can weigh in on this later. But uh, yeah, it was basically some employee slipped Bitcoin mining code into uh, a game and then sent it out off the network and uh, a bunch of people started mining Bitcoins for them. And then, of course, the company had to come clean and it was a big deal. Did you guys see this article? I just, I loved it articles about employees gaming their companies. I shouldn't, but I do. Well, the reason I brought it up is there's this big push to, uh, I don't know if it's quote-unquote part of continuous delivery, or but there's this big push that every employee should be able to ship. And so these articles come out where it's like an employee will slip the thing in and every, all the customers are like, how could this happen? And it's like, well, guys, when you give every employee unfettered access to ship anything all the time ever and no oversight, like, why is this even a surprise? And I don't think we found the right balance there between oversight of that and total freedom to do that. I know uh, GitHub had an article once they called democratize shipping. Um, and I'm not so sure that's... Well, let's put it this way. When stuff like this happens, it's easy to see. Uh, so we haven't. So I wanted to bring it up and uh, see what you guys thought of it just because I thought it was an interesting use. I, I think they ended up making um, $3,500 in Bitcoins. $3,700 in Bitcoins. Because so, Bitcoins aren't cheap anymore, right? Well, yeah. I mean, it depends. So apparently they made 30 Bitcoins, which depending on the current market value could be a I lot can't of believe you could. I can't believe you could mine 30 Bitcoins at this point. I thought they were all sort of mined at this point. Oh, no, no, no. I think I think they're... I, I, I don't know. what It's a lot harder to mine Bitcoins now. They're running like... Yeah. Uh, I can't remember now. It's like... Oh, I was looking at it the other day. But yeah, I mean, they are pretty spendy, but I don't know. It would still be a lot of work to mine that much. But when it's on everybody's desktop client, you know. Their GPUs. Now, <laughs> yeah, no, it's like, why Why is my lap on fire with my laptop playing this game? I don't I'm understand. at the loading screen. What's going on? <laughs> yeah, I know, exactly. Maybe this is why SimCity was not... No, this is... This was a different game, but uh, I, yeah. I think I think there's a lot of places that are allowing devs to sort of pull the trigger, and I think largely the majority of them, um, they're not going to have this kind of problem. That's not the kind of problems they're going to have, but yeah. Yeah, exactly. I, I don't think you should. I don't think there'd be a high rate of like malicious code. But, uh, well, well, yeah, but so here's the other thing, and you see this from time to time, where developers become disgruntled for whatever reason, and there's a whole laundry list of reasons they could, but when you have absolutely no gates, and you have no one whose role it is to actually, when you don't have release engineers anymore, because you don't believe in that that role, 
this sort of stuff happens. And I just don't think from a like a business perspective side, like in general, we haven't figured out how to address that yet. And I think we'll we'll have to figure that out because the, getting rid of all those release engineers is great on the business side, but then pissing off your customers because you slipped them bit mining code on their GPUs. Like, is that well, the trade-off you want to make? I don't know. Mature teams also have, they have rules in place. Like you make small commits that are all reviewed by a teammate and things. So there's that. And then there's also the idea that, I don't know that all these release engineers are just completely gone either. So you have now, and I don't really want to derail the conversation this much, but the idea of, and I don't want to call them DevOps teams, but tools teams. And I think that that's where you'll see a lot of people who might be called release engineers is, is working on tooling that isn't just specific to, say, app builds or whatever. It's it's a lot more broad these days because they're also doing scaling and, and building out right. of yeah. larger things. So I don't yeah. think that they're gone. I think that they might be doing more expanded things and that devs are actually expected to have somebody review their code. I mean, that's often how it yeah. works. Well, I mean, that's... I, that, I, I, yeah, my point is is I there's a line to be found there and I don't think... I think we're finding it experimentally. And whenever one of these stories comes out, that's exactly what I go to is like democratizing shipping and having everybody ship is great in principle and it's great actually forgetting that we deploy 80 million times a day or whoever you know whatever the stats are right at, at some of the these places I mean that's great and I don't mean to make light of that but there is a drawback to that and these are kind of uh, warning signs that we should all look at and see if there's any lessons there in our own environments. So Well, it is, I'm, but you, you also have to look at like big companies and all of the stupid rules that are in place that are just irritating true. and pointless, and they happen because of things like this. So you have to yep. think about how much you want to put rules in place because one guy was an asshole. Yep, totally agree. Uh, actually, kind of somewhat related. So there was a, a blog post that was going around. Well, it was on Hacker News originally was the discussion, and uh, it was a person who works on the Windows kernel team, and they uh, were answering the question why Windows fell behind Linux. And so they were talking about the anti-kernel, and then they deleted their post, and somebody actually mirrored it, and then the anonymous person talked to the person who mirrored it. We'll link to it in the show notes. It's actually a very interesting read. The reason I brought it up is partially, part of it is kind of funny. He said, uh, one of the quotes is, oh god, the NTFS code is a purple opium-fueled Victorian horror novel that uses global <laughs> recursive locks and SEH for flow control. Uh, he also said... The anti-kernel is still much better than Linux in some ways. You guys be tripping with your overcommit by default. MM nonsense. No, I, I, I don't know about it. that. I, I, I highly doubt that, but yeah. That's... Well, so, so here's the thing. I thought the post was very animated. It, it actually was enjoyable to read. But one of the things that I thought was really interesting, we talk about this a lot, I think the major point that he was making was that from a business perspective, uh, he actually used a great example. He said, if on Linux you make directory traversal 5% faster, you are universally praised. Everybody's happy with that. If on the NT side, you're not in the, I guess he called it the objects team, which is responsible for that, and you make directory traversal 5% faster, he lists all of the people that are going to be annoyed by that. So your manager's going to be annoyed by that because you have to explain why you weren't working on other code. The other team manager is going to be annoyed because now they have to support this patch. Then the project manager or the product... I mean, he lists like four people that are going to be annoyed with you. And he basically was saying this is a difference in culture. It's really actually a culture article. And that's why I thought it was really interesting because yeah. he's talking about how the differences in open source culture versus kind of this older stodgy culture. And he talks a lot about like there was no business reason to do... He, the other example he gave was uh, TCP flow control. There's like four different governors in the Linux kernel you can pick to do TCP flow control. And so they were able to, to experiment with a lot of those. And he 
you know, no customers paying for that, so why bother? So they only started caring about security because customers gave a shit. Right. So, yep. I mean, there was a, it was an interesting article and it was an interesting rant, and it was obviously very therapeutic for him, and, and he sounded pretty contrite later when he came back and was like, I had no idea this would make quite the waves that it did. Right. So that was interesting. Well, so I think, we you know, what's interesting about this is this is an article that we've all wanted to write at some point in time. <laughs> and true. and the thing is, is that this has a lot of actual data, right? He gives tons of examples where you'll see this. And, and it was funny, he, the one example I was, he was talking about PowerShell. And I know that we talked about that a couple episodes back. And he was saying the reason PowerShell exists is because we weren't allowed to make command.exe better. So he actually gives a lot of these reasons that you can actually see the trade-offs. And he doesn't necessarily agree with the decision they made, but at least he makes the trade-off more apparent. And actually, I think there's probably a good business case study in there if you could get over the hump of, like, it's kind of airing dirty laundry. So last up tonight, we have an article that uh, Sasha linked us to from Business Insider. They were talking about a company called 42 Floors, uh, and I think they're in New York, but they were talking about their vacation policy and this idea that is popular of unlimited vacation and of course what their policy is linked to it in the show notes but they were talking about the fact that they actually force everyone to take a paid vacation their first two weeks which I thought was interesting. Sasha you were also talking about just uh, the general idea of uh, unlimited vacation. Yeah I do I have a lot of issues with uh, a lot of and I have air quotes here around startup perks and places with unlimited vacation give me undefined anxiety about things because it's a lot of pressure on you depending on what kind of an environment you're in whether or not it's okay to take vacation. And we put a lot of pressure on ourselves, too. Right. And it's hard sometimes to feel as though you can let go, even though everybody else is like, no, really, go. It's still hard. I mean, having been tech leads for projects and stuff, I've been online every day uh, on my on my vacation, making sure that everybody's still okay while I'm gone. Yeah, well, there's certainly this sort of unplugging problem, which is starting to get more coverage. Uh, I've actually, my roommate has sent me a couple of articles from the New York Times, like they're covering our inability to unplug. So there's like that problem. But uh, there was an article recently that was talking about for these unlimited vacation policy, like they actually have shown people take less time off. Yeah, um, I'm pretty sure they would. And the other interesting thing about it that people aren't talking about is when you say we have unlimited vacation time and you kind of don't define as you have any vacation time, when the state of California, at least, and I know a few other states, vacation time is accrued and if you leave and don't use it, it gets paid out as regular income. And I've worked at startups where we were going so fast that the cash out was actually all of my accrued vacation time. So when you don't, when your vacation policy is, well, you get zero vacation, but also infinite vacation, you're actually losing a benefit because that doesn't accrue against the books. Somebody else is, said uh, on Twitter, Martin Briaco was saying that there's actually like a big tax win for the company that way too. And I don't actually understand all the financials behind it, but apparently they well, have to a, pay taxes on the stuff that you. Oh, EJ, you were part of that discussion, weren't you? It, it's a tax loophole. I mean, it's it's because they have to pay uh, taxes on whatever it is that, that they're giving you for that final paycheck. So right, it's income. So they right. they have to pay employment tax and all of that on that. And in right. fact, I know there was this weird dichotomy where they were like, we want you to take vacation because that time is accrued on their books. Right. So it's actually money that they have to keep around if, if you leave. And uh, so that was like, there was this weird, like, you should take vacation, but we don't want you taking vacation because we, we, we don't want it on our books, but we it was so, weird. So the perspective that I've heard from some kind of HR 
business types is that, especially with a lot of agile shops where everybody's kind of, well, not everybody, but people who are on scrum teams are treated as a resource, that unlimited vacation time is better because then you can kind of, you know, you, you can kind of plan ahead. I, I don't particularly agree with that, but that's kind of the perspective that I've heard from, you know, more HR business types. I think it came out of Netflix, there was some quote a while ago, maybe it's in some slide about their unlimited vacation policy, and you just want to take less than the guy who's being a jerk about it, essentially. You just you don't you don't want to like draw fire, draw attention to it. Uh, the company I work at right now, Rapid7, has an unlimited vacation policy, and pretty much any time I've asked for time off, it's been granted. Hand, hands down, there's been no question. In fact, the people around me, one of my friends, he's taking a two-week break. He's going out to Iceland and traveling all over the place. A couple of my Indian buddies, they take off months at a time and they go back to India to go see their family. So it's totally viable. But at the same time, there's people like me who have a work ethic. I don't know, work ethic is not probably the right phrase for it. Maybe I'm masochistic. Yeah. yeah. It's kind of, yeah. no, I know what you're talking about. It's, it's, it's hard to I, disconnect. Yeah, maybe it's a little obsessive-compulsive, and you're just like, oh, just one more minute, and I'll get this thing. And So anyway, yeah, it's, it's tougher for people like me. In, in some companies, you're, you give, you're granted like two or three weeks' worth of vacation, and in January or in December, if you don't take it, they essentially like make you take two weeks off right at the right. end of the year. For us, Unless you work for a retail like company, in which case you're screwed. Right. <laughs> well, it sounds to me like it's one of those things where on the business side or the management side, you have to really be attuned to the – because I could easily see people kind of going back that unlimited vacation policy when it comes back to review time going, well, who took the – because even though you're not supposed to use it that way, you, you could be inclined to use it that way. And then also what you were saying, EJ and Sasha, if you're OCD about your work, it's hard to disconnect. And so I could see it both ways where you, you have to have an environment that really supports it for it to work. But I, I thought they, they called it a precation. I thought it was interesting. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That, that, the point about the precation thing. I totally, totally get that. If you've been hammering throttle to the stop at some client and this new, new job comes up and you're totally sold on this new place, and you give your notice, and you take no break between the jobs, you're still processing right. the yep. crap from the previous set of abuse, <laughs> abuses, yep. right? So I love to take at least a week off between gigs, and I, I think the whole, like, precation thing is a brilliant idea to way to sort of, like, forcefully decompress. Yeah, like, get rid of the baggage. on your employees before they start. I think that's brilliant. Yeah, yeah, definitely. All right, well, next up, uh, we're talking about tool proficiency, specifically with version control. Next up, publishing show. Welcome back to The Ship Show. So version control is a topic that is often discussed in the DevOps community, and one might argue that its use is one of the core tenets of the movement. But we wanted to dive a bit deeper in what level of proficiency with tooling and version control in particular should be expected of a build or release engineering team. And does that apply to automation or ops teams or even developers? So Yusuf, you posed this question. Uh, why don't we start with how did this topic come up for you? Yeah, sure. So uh, you know, I've been um, kind of put into situations where I've had to work with a variety of uh, different folks who work in different functional you know departments, scientists. So we've got developers, QA operations, and there's always been some sort of training associated with doing the basic type of 
version control, check-in, commit code, check stuff out, that type of thing. But then once you start to get into, you know, other more, I guess, I would consider to be, you know, complex, uh, complex merging, getting into things like code line policies that require you to maintain, you know, different sets of branches or topics, depending on what tool you're using. So the idea is it's kind of like, okay, should people know all about that other type of stuff with regards to version control, or should they just know the basic, the bare minimum? Is it enough to know the bare minimum of, okay, I can commit code, I can check code out, and I don't really care about all the other features like, you know, I don't care about Git rebase or on subversion, maybe doing uh, SBN repo dump filtering. So, you know, stuff like that. Well, so that's a good question. I think one of the kind of issues to constrain it, uh, sort of who's responsible for maintaining your source control system? And if we were having this conversation five or ten years ago, the answer would all be, well, there's a guy, maybe it's IT that does it, tech ops or whatever, that is responsible for maintaining the repository and backing it up. But now you have this weird situation, which I think you're kind of alluding to, which if your company is on private GitHub, then they're doing that. And so there's not necessarily anyone that you need to hire that is the expert in source control. So I I definitely think that that is one big shift, is that as we move more towards infrastructure as a service and actual companies don't have their own tooling in-house, you actually lose a little bit of that expertise, whether it's on the op side, the dev side, the the tooling team side. Well, you still, I mean, the guys at GitHub aren't rebasing or merging your code for you. They're just giving you a place to dump your code. Right, but so that's my point, is that because... So so I've administrated Perforce at almost a 1,000 engineer sites. I've done the same for Subversion. And so part of that is you, if you're responsible for administrating those tools, you start to know Subversion before version 1.5 is not actually that good at merges. And you, you accrete all of this knowledge about what branching and merging strategies work and don't work for the type of policy you're trying to do. If you're using GitHub and you don't have a guy who's lived that for their career, then this is common, and we've all seen this on, it's like a free-for-all. So you've got 30 people trying to merge and rebase, and they're all force-pushing to to GitHub, which because GitHub on their hosted stuff doesn't allow you to turn that off, and they're just walking all over each other, and that is apparently a cost that we've just accepted now. Ooh, that sounds like a culture problem to me. How so? Uh, Just saying, because if you're stomping on each other, then you have problems, and you need to talk more. But that's a training issue, which which is funny because we were going to talk about that soon too. But if they're stomping on each other because because they and and this gets into if we're talking about version control tools, uh, Git in particular, but uh, it makes it easy to stomp on other people because if you see an error message you don't understand, just push you know push harder, push dash f. I've never used the dash f option myself. I think I would be I would be wondering what was wrong if we're, I were to do that. We're sort of spinning off tangentially. How so? Now we're sort of like into the nitty-gritty about policies and not education or understanding. Well, so that's but that's actually a good point because uh, Yusuf and and tell me if if I'm right. I mean, part of the thing you're asking about is if you're talking about education and code line management and policies, unless you have somebody on staff or as a consultant. And I've done this kind of consulting with clients where. It's like, we want to have this kind of a built flexibility to do code line management stuff. That's very different than, hey, everyone just use Git flow, yeah. right? Yeah, I mean, and then the other thing is, is for, you know, I, I got asked questions like, hey, I want to be able to track changes or get notified changes with Subversion or Git or whatever, or can you integrate 
this version control system with my XYZ awesome bug management system. You know, st- right. stuff that goes beyond just basic committing code and checking code out. So, you know, the one thing, and, and uh, Sasha, you and I were talking about this before the show, about the fact that for a lot of even teams that are doing automation, like check out, check in, get pull, let, that's enough. At least you, you were saying that. For me, I mean, in my life, I, if, it's, if it's anything beyond fetch, clone, push, you know, I've done, I have to read the instructions every time I do a topic branch for ops code. I can do pull requests <laughs> for everybody else in the world, but I have to read the instructions for their funky topic branch stuff every single time. Right. So maybe if I did more pull requests, that wouldn't be a problem. But well, I don't like... immerse in Git every day. So for me, every time I have to do something that's not right straight up, it's, it's uh, Google time. Well, so let me ask the panel this, because I'm actually really curious. When Yusuf posed this question, I thought to myself, if you were using a tool like CVS or Subversion or Perforce, I don't know that I would think you would need to make sure that your developers know the intricate details. You might need a release engineer or a build engineer or a tool person who does on your on your staff, because that would be useful. But I think that's changed with Git. And I think it's because Git support so many different types of workflows and because it is so easy to stomp other people like the tool allows you to do that out of the box and is very unforgiving in a lot of use cases so if that's the case and and I've accidentally done this I mean I'll cop to it at at a client I actually stomped a couple of commits because I thought I was pushing to a topic branch when I was actually pushing to master so I've done it too I'm just saying if you have nobody to help your team with those problems what do you I mean what do you do these days? Well, so I think it really helps to have at least one person on a team that's an expertish in one of your things, right? So everybody should at least have something that they're really good at. Not everybody should be good at the same thing. And if you hire like that, then again, you have hiring problems. So there should be some cross-functional talent in your team whether it's dev or devops or I don't even know what. So uh, when I was on the last tools team I was on, we had a guy who was like a wizard at git. Like he would do this stuff and he'd be like, "What did you just do?" And the rest of us are like, help Google kindergartners, right? But uh, as long as you have one person who can take your, your stilted words of what you just did and you have no idea what you just did and help you figure out how to fix that, uh, I think you're pretty good. Not everybody has to be an expert. So yeah, what, what happens if that one expert goes away or... Well, there should um, be knowledge dissemination too, but you're gonna, not everybody can be an expert at everything. Otherwise, we, won't, we wouldn't have generalists. Well, so let me ask this, Sasha. When Yusuf brought the topic up, the thing I was thinking of was uh, if you've ever heard the term language lawyer. A lot of bigger companies used to have or, or bigger teams used to have a language lawyer. And so they were the ones that came up with all read-only objects will be passed by reference in C++. And I'm sure I'm screwing that up because it's been years since I've done C++. But the point is they knew the intricacies of particular language the team was using, whether it's PHP or C++ or Java or whatever. And they came up with the rule book for the development team and like, these are the rules. And so it sounds to me kind of like what you're describing is a language lawyer. And so I was going to ask, do you, you know, version control aside, we've actually kind of focused a bit on Git. Do you feel this is relevant for teams that like if they're, let's say they're doing a chef or a puppet deployment and you have everybody writing cookbooks, does this apply to other tools? Should you have someone who knows chef internals could do a chef internal patch if they found bugs or, or that sort of thing? You should have somebody who's working towards that if you don't have someone. If you're using Chef, if you're using Puppet, you should have somebody whose primary role it is to understand that stuff at a visceral level and be able to not dictate, but make confident assertions about how you should use the tool. 
maybe you know maybe you don't have somebody like that today if, if the tool is new or whatever, but you might have somebody who is dedicated to being that SME. So I think there's a real value to having SMEs. I don't think people should be single points of failure. I think knowledge needs to be disseminated and, and shared an SM, out. What's an SME? Subject matter expert. Oh, okay. I learned something today. So, yeah, I think that that stuff needs to be spread out, but you should have somebody who is comfortable assuming their role. It doesn't even need to be a job description, but on the last team I was on, I mean, uh, people would come over and say, hey, the chef question, and then everybody would turn to look at me, and I'd be like, you guys can all answer the questions about chef too, but on the other hand, sometimes it would be really bizarre and intricate, and only one or two of us would actually have an opinion. And that's really what you need sometimes, but not everybody needs to have that, because if you have that, well, you're really lucky. If you have 10 people on your team who know all of the things that you work on at that intricate a level, then you are really lucky. I, I, have, a, I have a couple of questions. So back to the original question. The question was, should my DevOps team have more than a basic proficiency? What is more than a basic proficiency? So you said you threw out question. commands like rebase. Is that what you're talking about? Like So basic proficiency... Uh, no, you said beyond what, basic proficiency. What you, well, so let's define basic proficiency. So basic okay. proficiency is I understand the, me the basic mechanics of version control. So well, What are those? Because I probably don't. So you're. So what does it mean to have a version of something like that? And then I, can, I would. You know, I would describe basic proficiency as exactly what you said, Sasha. I I can clone a repository. I can check things in. I can push things in the simple case. Maybe I can push things in the complex case where upstream has changed. And I understand the tool enough to know actually where where the edges of that my knowledge are. So I know that. For instance, with Subversion, it's relatively clear. The tool makes it relatively easy to let you know where you're getting into sort of there be dragons here, right? Perforce is also well known for that. So now, I want to I I throw two more things out here. So okay. the, the, other, the other thing is like, so I introduced a whole bunch of people in my office to Mercurial. And Mercurial, I feel like, is baby steps towards Git. It is DSCM. But if you're used to things like uh, SVN revert or like P4 revert, Mercurial feels very natural to you. All the same commands exist. Right. As where Git is this like checkout dash whatever. I would have to Google right. it. I don't. I honestly don't know it. Right? right. So there are some tools that there's sort of like a stretch where y you could extend your understanding just based on prior knowledge of previous tools. So maybe maybe Git is difficult. And the other the other question I have for for Yusuf is I want clarification around the actual team that he's talking about here. Is it like more of an operations team? Is it more of a developers team? He said DevOps, but I'm, I'm curious. So the developers that I was working with through this process, they struggled. They had a really, really hard time. They're like, why can't I just commit? And why do I have to push this? And like, right. this is how the SCM works, kids. Like, Whoa, yeah, you know, that was, a hard, that was a hard leap for me to go from the just to commit to what's the difference between commit and push? And now I really understand the difference between commits. Well, and the whole idea you. that you make a really tiny commit, and then, but that's not the same as a push. And if you, well, me, if you screw up some of these things, it's like, revving up those little cars with that, you know, uh, inertia motor inside it and throwing it into your sister's hair. It just, like, creates this snarl of merge <laughs> hell. No, it just creates this, like, snarl. I'm like, sure you've never done that. Oh, God, I, I threw an apple lady in my sister's hair. <gasps> I don't know what I'm talking about. But, but look, it's, like, it's like creating a snarl like that. If you have these, like, weird merge conflicts and the developer finally calls you over and you're like, I don't know. We're gonna to have to cut that thing out. We just we, we there's no there's no way to salvage your hair, my friend. Right. So let me go. ask you a question, EJ. Let me ask you a question because this is actually really interesting. If your developers are like, I don't want to use this tool. Why are you using that tool? 
what who who dictated? Because and the reason I ask, and I, I don't mean to put you on the the hook, but you see this a lot with Git, where it's like our we're using we're all switching to Git, and like eighty percent of the developers are confused, and it's because a couple developers said, well, we're using Git, and I'm the I'm the architect or I'm whatever, and so that's what we're doing. And it, what's interesting about that is they drag everyone else along, and this goes right to the question we're trying to, does that mean you'll have, you should have Git training, right? Because a lot of companies are just like, well, go read the free Git book and go Google your copious amounts of okay. spare time. Yeah, yeah. So for, for us, it was like 90% of the company was already using Mercurial, and it made a total... Total sense for us. So and that then, makes sense. That, but, yeah, that but, does make sense. What was really crazy was that people struggled with some very basic concepts, and they're like, well, we should just be using Git. And I'm like, I can't imagine unfing your Git repositories if you're struggling <laughs> with material. Yeah. Right. So that, to me, that answers that definitively. And you know what? Probably in the future, we will likely move to Git for a lot of things, like our chef repositories. We're using a, a tool called Roadcode. Roadcode allows you to host internally um, both Mercurial repositories and Git repositories. And while it's not beautiful, it definitely gets the job done. But also, it lets us switch to move all our recipes, our environments, our roles, everything that we're versioning for Chef to Git. And at some point, we'll probably have like an internal GitHub. It used to be called GitHub FI, like firewall install or something. I don't know what it's called anymore. But enterprise. At some point, we'll have something like that. All right. So, but I want to get back to, to Yusuf's question. Like, I want definition around like, I've worked in places, Yusuf, with huge operation teams, and they're like, if it's not in Perl, it's not, you're not speaking my language. Like it's, or I don't know what, something similar I, I to that. I had someone recently ask me, should, should we use version control with Chef? And I was like, this is still a question? Well, actually, no, it's funny. So I want to get to EJ's question, but I was going to, and I didn't mention this earlier, Yusuf, you retweeted something where some popular plugin author was like, yeah, we don't use version control. And that's actually one of the reasons I wanted to talk about this topic as well, because exactly what Sasha said, I'm like, I can't even believe we're still talking about whether or not you should do this. I remember having those conversations literally at the start of my career 15 years ago, and I was like, why would you not do this? And we're still having that conversation? I don't get it. Part of me wonders if it's the proficiency, the training issue, if it's the, like, uh, the source control is too hard. I mean, are people actually saying that? Like, Yusuf, have you ever run into developers or teams where they're like, I just don't want to use this because it's too hard? Or Sasha? Uh, I've, I've run into developers. No, who... no absolutely not. Yeah, no, I, everybody I've worked with have been, has been like, yes, of course we use source control. I've never worked with anyone who's had to ask me that question. And to be fair, the people who asked me were fairly inexperienced with anything but straight up old school ops. And I have been there, and I didn't, I didn't understand. Five years ago, I was like, I don't understand subversion. What's that? And I was so I get that. You know, they hadn't heard of Jenkins. They didn't know what it did or anything like that. So they were in a different place than the rest of us. But developers, I don't ever want to hear that come out of a developer's mouth ever. Right. And see them at the office the next day. So anyway, yes, back to EJ's wow, question. Wow, that was a little opinion, David. Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, I don't get it. I, I, I saw that post, and I was like, that. it seems that's like a carpenter saying, well, I want to build your house, but I refuse to use a hammer. I just don't even get in what world you would operate without source control. And again... I always thought the DevOps push behind version control was quaint because I was like, well, I've been saying this for 15 years. Duh. Right. So, uh, Yusuf, EJ asked, what type of team are right. you so but before, no, before I mentioned that, I, I wanted to answer your question about whether we've I've run into a team that are developers that have sort of complained about version control. And yeah, I have. I've, I've run into people who don't understand how subversion works. And I they're, they're like, too. you know, they're, they're, they're annoyed about... Developers. You know, 
Yes, yep. developers. They just don't understand how subversion works. They, they're, they're saying, why can't I change this one individual file in this you know, particular revision? Or what, why well, is merging so hard? Well, to the, so the, to the proficiency question, I have run into developers and I... I, I don't know. This gets into the are they are they the B people you hear always hear people talking about hiring or whatever, but they see version control in general as something that just gets in their way, and, and tools like Git make it worse, right? Because that is so confusing based on a standard. Say what you will about Subversion or Perforce or whatever, but you can check things out and check them back in, and that's a relatively simple model. Okay, so we've um, actually beat the hell out of this whole. People who don't use version control are stupid. Can we just ask that if anybody's out there not using version control and is still brave enough to write us, that they write us and tell us why, and if, if I, they have a good reason, if they think they do, because I would like to know. That's a, I would like to know the requirement. In fact, you know, we were talking about proficiency. I was thinking uh, back through my examples of this, and there is one example I can come up with, and it was the tech pubs team, and they just hated their lives when they had to, like, check-in doc file with images and they had to do and all this stuff and for them I totally get it and this is again where they they didn't That's do a, a good job problem. well they didn't no 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 they they wanted all the docs in source control and I understand that that's a training problem that the, the company didn't think them being proficient with version control was of something they needed to spend money on or allow the release engineering team to help them so they would come every time they had to do a big tech pubs merge from branch to branch. They would come and we'd waste an afternoon merging binary documents. And it was horrible, but that's a great example of maybe the, it is totally defensible for someone whose job it is writing tech pubs all day to like not want to have to use Git. Like I get that. Uh, but anyway, Yusuf, I keep interrupting you. What, 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 you, what were your, you were answering EJ's question. Right. So uh, regarding, you know, which teams or which individuals should, should know about this, I, I think before the whole concept of infrastructure as code kind of came about, you could probably just say it was enough for developers in QA to know about version control. Uh, now I think anybody who's involved in getting your software shipped out the door, yeah, they, they should know the basics of version control. So that's operations, QA, development, you know, if you're dealing with scientists, them too. So. Okay, but then you said beyond basic proficiency, and I'm going to define that, and you can tell me if you disagree with this definition. Sure. Uh, so I, I have a set of questions about source control that I like to ask uh, release engineers and build engineers and, and DevOps people, if they're going to be supporting people in that role, about how does Perforce model branches, how does CVS model branches, how does Git model branches, how does Git model a, co a commit object. And the reason it's important, I think, to know that is because, and I ran into to this exact issue, if you have been driving Perforce for two or three years and you are now responsible for supporting a team using Git and you're trying to model how Git does branches and Git does code lines versus how Perforce does it, you are going to be totally confused. What does that mean to model stuff? Uh, well, the short answer is Perforce actually models uh, code lines as code lines and Git models the entire commit history as trees that you can rebase and move around. And the point is is that if you're supporting a team and a manager comes to you and says, you know, we need to support this product, this code line, for six months before we merge it back for whatever reason. What? This happens all the time. And this is the thing where it's like we talk to web ops teams. They're like, well, we, 
we don't have to support our product for more than a week because we'll just do another push. These are real problems. And if yeah, but you, if your whole team needs to know this stuff, because that's what I thought we were talking about. There should be some guy who knows this stuff or some some chick, I guess. But well, uh, and, I yeah, actually half the words you're using to talk about this stuff don't make any sense to me. So um, well, so I'm what's screwed. what's funny about that is I've I've been on teams where nobody knows that stuff. Well, and, you know, I don't know whether that's a great thing or not, but that level of proficiency is not something that is going to be. Well, probably we're going to get better at it these days now that some more people are doing it. But uh, until the last, I don't know, several years, I would say that the only people doing that stuff regularly were the devs. And now a lot more people are doing it. It's becoming a lot more public, a lot more... Doing uh, which stuff? So using source version control. control. Using version yeah. control, mastering version control, struggling with version control. Git is a thing now in a way that I don't think it was five years ago. Which Well, and it's funny, too, because of all the tools that you could throw on this industry gets interfaces so bad <laughs> like of you know and there's there's a great there's actually a great post I'll see if I can find it is that's that talking get, get as hard get used to it no there was a post that was talking about all of the in, all of the inconsistencies in the command line interface and the fact that just if you're trying to learn it, it a lot of the things don't just even make logical sense like why git resets a great one reset does like five different things depending on which way you call it and which flag you use and they're conceptually totally different things so so that just that's a mistake from a cognitive model and yet there's a lot of like we'll just get used to it and that's a horrible answer to your cognitive model is broken right in every other device where design matters we were like we should make the cognitive model work except with version control uh, I wanted to ask the panel integration engineers. Does anyone has any? Does anyone remember those? What is what? Yeah, I do. Painfully. So, yeah. So, well, so uh, Yusuf, when you were talking about this, integration engineers are actually the people that, in the good old days, would have this proficiency, and they were the ones where you'd have your CVS tree, and you'd, you know, they'd work on the the release engineering team, and it was their job to merge the last six months of commits. Oh right. Oh my God. Yeah, this was a thing, but I, the reason I wanted to ask is because... Well, I've seen that happen at other places, but it's generally not just one poor schmuck. Well, yeah, or usually that engineer would work with other developers or whatever, but yeah, that used to be a role where, you know, and I think that role is largely going away, but this goes back to the proficiency question. Saucer, you were mentioning, when people are proficient, they have a lot of pins. You were talking about chef, and that could be... A blessing and a curse, right? I think it's absolutely a blessing, especially if you're in a large organization because somebody needs to have an opinion because everybody else just wants to use the tool. They don't want to no. have to figure things out. Correct, but what I'm saying is if you've got a set of five people that all think you that should... That is a whole to... other problem, right? And that's right. another problem that is more of a... Everybody wants to dictate how you should use it and nobody is actually able to assert control and it becomes a free-for-all and... and that's a real frustrating position to be in. So assuming assuming a lot of people have proficiency on your team on a particular tool, do you have any suggestions for how you would how you address that problem? That would be a whole talk all by itself, I think. <laughs> uh, you fight about it a lot, for one, if yeah. you don't agree. Sometimes you leave. Rock, paper, scissors, <laughs> that, that works. Well, so <laughs> really, it, it, that strikes me as, I don't know, it, I worked on a team, an ops team, several years ago, actually, and we're totally getting off topic here, but what we learned is that generally you put two of us on a, whatever, on a project, on a meeting, on a problem to solve. Two is the ideal number because one person isn't really quite enough to brainstorm by themselves, but three, and you can't figure anything out, you can't decide anything because everybody, there are three different ways to do it because you've got three people in the room and they're all good ways to do it, but you can't figure out what you want to do because you can't, nobody can win, but two people can usually come 
to an agreement. And so that's, I think, one of the big problems that I have these days with cross-functional collaborative teams is that a lot of times people don't know when to let things go. And that's, well, or, like I said, that, I feel like we're getting totally off topic here because we could talk for, I could talk by myself to nobody <laughs> for an hour about it. It's no problem. Sometimes people aren't, aren't willing to just take one, if those three people come back with three different ideas and they're all their backs are turned to each other at some point, there's like, I think my idea is the best. At some point, two need to compromise and say, all right, we're going to try this one idea and we'll give it a month or we'll give it six months or we'll give it a year. And if it fails, then we'll evolve it to this other thing. So I, I think I, I a lot think of people feel like it's like you're going to make this decision and it's going to be binary forever. It's like cutting off an arm. Yeah, a lot know, of people it, fight about stuff and people don't want to agree to things. And I think that we actually, it, to me, it feels like a lack of trust in collaborative teams in a lot of ways because there are all kinds of things that I actually don't want to have an opinion on on, on my cross-functional team. And I'm happy you know, to let you go do stuff. And I want you to give me that same respect. But again, so, like I'm saying, is that I think we need one or two people who do have opinions. If you have three or four that have strong opinions on something, then you need to figure out some kind of rotation on when you can have those opinions. So EJ, I think that's, that's good advice, but I'll give you the counter argument to that, and it's version control specific. And I worked in these environments where the organization couldn't make a decision. And culture aside, it was to the point where the source repository was such a mess, somebody just should have been an and said, we're doing it this way and I don't care yeah. what you guys think. And the problem was they tried a new branching model every four months and they had to support releases or maybe six months, but they had their support releases for 18 months. So the problem is you could never write a tool that built the product because it, you could never figure out how you're supposed to check out a branch that was more than six months old because it had changed because somebody had a new opinion. And that is actually a cultural problem of a different sort where you're paralyzed by... It's too many options, and no one is willing to either work through them in a productive way or just say the time for the discussion is over and we're going with this and everybody needs to get on board with it. Nobody has enough authority to actually assert that. That's like a hyper-realization of what I'm talking about. For example, like what I'm talking about is, so we're going to start versioning all our chef things, our environments, our roles, everything possible. And originally we said we're just going to put it all in one repository. I think that's <laughs> you missed Julian Dunn's talk. Yeah, I think that's absolutely terrible. I think we should break them up, and to some degree there should be some sort of like org-based or role-based, not chef role, but role-based segregation. Give me a week, I'll come in and set y'all straight. But back to back to Yusuf's original question. So should should your team, for some definition of team, have more than just passing proficiency with version control? Yusuf, you asked this question, so we'll let you have the final word. What's your What's your answer after all our, our discussion? My answer is that uh, it depends. I, I want to lean towards yes. I respect what Sasha says about not wanting to know the nitty-gritty or full details about certain things, but I think version control is so central to a lot of development. Um, and when I say development, I mean infrastructure development and product or whatever development that you really can't afford to not know you know, beyond the basics of checking in and checking out code. Well, I think for the one thing that we're seeing more and more with Git is that uh, there there was a funny tweet somewhere that said something like, I'm, I, I hate merging, but I'm getting really good at it because I merge all day with Git just because that's what the workflow requires. Perf like, should you be proficient aside, I can tell you this. College students or p people that are coming into the industry, if you actually have more than a proficient knowledge of Git or the version control system that you're using, or at least can talk about the topic, you'll find it comes up more often than you think. So you're certainly not, that's always going to be a skill that's useful. So you can't go wrong. 
knowing as much as you can about it, especially all those weird merge options to uh, to get merge. Uh, anyway, of course, we'll open this up to our listeners as always. Uh, we'd love to hear what uh, you all think. Uh, you can tweet us at uh, Ship Show Podcast on Twitter and tell us what do you think, what level of uh, knowledge you need to have of version control. And also, the other question Sasha asked, if you sh- shouldn't be using version control at all, you should tell us why, just as an interesting side. I want to know. That could be an episode all on and its I own. And I promise not to be, I, I, we promise not to revile or make No, sna- no snarkiness. Right, because no. I want to know for serious. Yeah, no, I do too. All right, we'll be back in a moment. You're on the show. Welcome back to the Ship Show. So for our final segment tonight, Yusuf, uh, you're doing a tooltip about, ironically, a tool related to Git called TIG. Is that... Yeah. 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 Tell us a, about TIG. It's a, it's, a, it's a palindrome for Git. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so TIG, yeah. I, uh, it's a command line um, NCurses-based tool that colorizes a lot of Git output. So if any of you, you know, work with Git and you do things like Git paw, Git diff, you know, all the... Git subcommands that allow you to pull data about your local repo or your you know, whatever repo you're you're working with, but instead you can use TIG to kind of colorize it. Um, and that's handy when you're looking at large diffs because I don't know about you, but if I'm looking at a long a long diff and it's not colorized, I, my eyes start to bug out. So yeah, it's a it's a great, real simple tool. Again, it's command line based. I want to say that it's written in yeah, it is written in C because it's in the the NCurses library. One of the things that I really like about it is that you can use it as a pager. So you can, by pager, I mean like more, the more and less uh, or uh-huh. command. And so you could do like git diff, you know, like between two, maybe um, two to like a branch and maybe a tag or something and then pipe it to, to TIG and then you'll you'll get a nice little colorized uh, output. So yeah, great tool. Installed this the other day. Uh, and started playing with it. It, it. What it reminds me of is basically an NCurses based Git K. If you're familiar with Git K, and so it has the same sort of. It shows you. It doesn't. Sh- it doesn't draw the branches in NCurses, but it it has a the top part of the window has the list of commits, and then of course it's got the nice J and K uh, up and through the commits. It'll show the diff for you, which is really handy. I mean, I, I like Git K, but I've got you know we've all got Git repositories on machines that are like servers that don't have the X libraries and stuff. Uh, so this super helpful for that, and and as you were saying, super helpful color coded, so you can uh, read it, and and it'll give you a nice diff stat and everything. And I didn't, I that was just in browser mode. I, I when you had mentioned that you can like tig diff, I didn't even notice that that there's a whole other commands, which is kind of neat. So that's really cool, and we'll link to that in the show notes. So uh, I wanted to give a quick shout out the release engineering. Uh, workshop uh, is coming up in the Bay Area in the next couple weeks. We'll put a link to the show notes in it for registering for it. But Sasha has a uh, talks to me. And is like, what a release engine? What, what what do they do? So uh, there's actually going to be people there from Netflix, Google, and Mozilla talking about release engineering and how that relates to DevOps. Netflix uh, is, has release engineers. Are you sure? Well, Netflix is giving a presentation. Probably I yeah, no engineering. <laughs> no rel but yeah so that should be interesting if you're in the area uh, um, feel free to check it out um, and of course uh, we we have our events page at theshipshow.com slash events which has all sorts of random events that are related to release engineering DevOps and of course everything in between so uh, from San Francisco this is Paul Reed signing off Minneapolis this is Sasha signing off from San Diego this is Yusuf signing off from Drake at Massachusetts this is EJ Sermel signing off 
and we'll see you all in a couple of weeks.